Welcome to Truth and Learning. I'm Matt Richter, and I'm here with my partner, my colleague, my friend, my mentor. I am his acolyte, Will Tallheimer. How are you, Will? Happy New Year, Matt. You're not even going to take the bait this time, are you? Oh, what? What? What bait? I'd I like to make you turn red and, uh, and, and get all uncomfortable with all the compliments. Well, you know, I'm, I'm a believer. I, I, I think that you have this theory that yeah. podcasts are improved when the speakers do eye rolls in the very beginning. Well, you know, there's research. If you look in the journal Personality and Social Psychology, 1992, uh, volume six, they did an entire essay on podcasts. And it, it, was, it was groundbreaking. I mean, podcasts didn't interested. even exist. Yeah, they, <laughs> they anticipated the the formation of the, this this great format called podcasting. Okay, we, so the listener warning here is that uh, none of that is true. And we may swear in this show. We keep forgetting to say that, but we can sometimes use curse words. So, why are they called curse words? Curses, I guess. Yeah, but if you say shit, why is that a curse? I mean, it's, it's a description. Uh, yeah. But it's not a curse. It's a swear. Yeah, but why is it a swear? I mean, this, you swear what? Well, I don't understand the etymology of, of I, I, the term well, curse or swear. Well, this is not an etymological podcast. I don't know what an etymological podcast would be. <laughs> Something to do with insects, I think. <laughs> oh, it's not etymology? etymology? I have no idea what you're talking etymology, about. Etymology, the history of the meaning of the word. Yeah, that's true, but... Yeah. yeah. Oh, anyway, welcome to Truth and Learning. We promise our bantering is over and we will actually get to substance now. Will and I have two segments that we're going to discuss between the two of us. And then for our third segment, we are going to have the great Cassie Labori join us. Cassie, if, if many of you know, is one of the great thought leaders in, in using activities and interactive approaches for virtual training. Uh, she and her colleague, and I hope I'm allowed to say her husband, uh, co-authored the book Interact and Engage, 50 Activities for Virtual Trainings, Meetings, and Webinars. And this is one of the books I love, and Cassie's going to join us for our third segment. But before that, Will and I are going to discuss goals and objectives and how they apply to the learning and development field. And specifically, we're going to get into learning objectives. Should you? Would you? Could you? Are they good for us to even leverage anymore as designers and trainers? Do we share them with our participants? And Will has a tremendous body of writing, even videos on this topic, and we'll, we'll dive into that. For our second segment, uh, this segment was something that Will spawned several episodes ago when he corrected me that uh, one should think of the purpose of training as something beyond just meeting the needs and objectives of the stakeholder the one paying you. And this has been fermenting in my brain since that episode. And I think I've 
come to agree with Will, and I thought it would actually be nice for us to dive deeper into that topic and, and explore it further because uh, I'm pretty sure a lot of people don't necessarily agree with us. And uh, why would we want to invite any of those people on to discuss it with us? It's, it'll be much more interesting to have Will and I both agree with each other, right, Will? So Matt? Yeah. Does this mean we're going to start 2020 with a common vision? We're going to think alike on these things? I always think like you do. Whatever oh, you tell me. That is not true. Yeah, shut up. Goals, objectives. So before we start talking about learning objectives, can we take a step back and define what a goal or an objective is? Here's the, the definition that I've been using. A goal is an outcome that one strives to attain. And as a clarifying description of that outcome, it has two attributes that are very important. One is a, a timeline. When's it due? When's, when will it be achieved? And secondly, that uh, it has a, an associated measure of success. In other words, how do we know it's done well when it's complete? So there's an outcome, there's a measure of success or a metric, and then it, uh, even though the metric may contain that deadline, I like to call that out because it's really important that a goal have a t uh, an endpoint. Uh, so that to me, a goal is an outcome we strive to attain, and it has descriptive characteristics of metrics and an associated timeline. That's my definition. That, okay, so I agree with your definition. Um, but what's interesting, the way you phrased it, you said a goal is an outcome that I want to obtain. Mm -hmm. But now when we talk about the L&D field, mm -hmm. we are creating goals for other people. So. The one thing I'm going to add is that when we have a goal or objective, we're really trying to create some kind of behavioral change. Would you agree with that? Yes. And we have a behavioral change in mind for a particular audience, usually the learners. Agreed. Okay. That's good. So I think we've nailed the goal question with the definition. Yes. And in our next segment, when we talk about the purpose of training, you, you put down, you, you just gave a caveat that in learning and development, we create goals for other people. And I think in our next segment, as we do indeed discuss purpose, we may expand that. And, yes, we and, should. And say that the learners may actually have goals of their own as well, and that we should be considering those too. I'd like you to end this class by 2 p.m. at the latest, please. <laughs> well, that goal we will not meet. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> I've been for years pushing the notion that we do not need to share learning objectives with our participants. That the notion of sharing learning objectives with participants is something that just is unnecessary. And what I'd much rather do is, is focus on sharing those objectives with my trainers or other designers that I need to co-design with and so forth. But the objectives we come up with as instructional designers are not necessarily to be shared with participants. This, I, agree, I agree with you a million percent. 
Well, when I found your video that shared all these thoughts, I jumped up and down. And now whenever a client pushes back on me, I send them your video. Well, it's really interesting. Uh, if you think, when we think about training and we think about education, there's a common belief that you must share the objective with the learners. I've seen this even in my daughter's classroom when she was in like second grade, you know? The teacher had to put the objective on the board. Uh, it was crazy. And we as trainers think the same thing. In fact, so many, I think it's going away now. I see it less and less, but in many, many classrooms, uh, in e-learning, whatever, you've got a, your second slide after the title page is the objectives. And then the agenda. <laughs> yeah, right. At 10.52, I will make a spontaneous joke. Yeah, and you know, learners, well, usually, usually the way we present them to learners is a very boring way, right? We say, you need to explain this, or you need to be able to list that, and you know, these kind of crazy kind of definitional things. Bloom, and, Bloom's taxonomy. Uh, it's just, it's, it's just crazy stupid. So what I've argued is that, let's think about what an objective is. An objective is there to help guide the behavior or the performance of some group or other, right? So why would we have the same objective for our learners that we would have for ourselves? We're trying to design instruction that's effective. We want our learners to engage in learning in a certain way to help them to learn it and remember it and to perform it. And uh, so why would we use the same objective to guide our behavior and our learners' behavior? It just, it's, it's phenomenally stupid. And yet that is sort of the, the rigor in our field. How much of that comes from Bob Meger in his book on learning objectives versus a bastardization of people's interpretation of his work? Well, it's been a long time since I, I read Mager. Um, he didn't originally focus on that, but I think some of his later writings, he did emphasize that you should show them to the learners, but it wasn't really, I don't think he solidified it. I think he you know, sort of might've suggested it a little bit. Um, but so then where did it come from? I don't know if it was Dick and Carrie or you know, some other of the, you know, graduate school program kind of readings that had to, to get done. I don't know where it came from. And, and what about Bloom? Well, Bloom, yeah. I mean, Bloom, and it wasn't just Bloom, but he had a whole group of people um, come together in a conference over like four years and, uh, you know, develop, they, they looked at different assessments and tried to come up with like a set of learning objectives. and. The one we typically see is only the cognitive objectives. There's also the affective and psychomotor objectives. Um, there's also, by the way, that was back in the 1950s. And then in the early 2000s, there was some cognitive scientists, you know, learning researchers said, wait a minute, you know, we've learned a lot about learning. Maybe we should change these. So there's a bunch of different groups that tried to change them, make them better. Um, I still don't recommend any of the Bloom's taxonomies, they're too complicated, they're too... Uh, do, they, do they achieve anything? 
Well, they, they push people beyond like, you know, creating rote assessments. So that's good. You know, they try to get to the higher level, but they, you know, like one of the levels is like evaluation, right? So um, you want people to be able to take some information and evaluate it. Well, that's good, but is that, is that directive enough for me to know how to create like a good assessment question? I don't think so. I think you really need to get down to you know, how to craft a, a very good scenario-based question. Uh, I think blooms is something to generally stay away from, but that's, you know, there's, there's a lot, there's a lot involved in, in, in these objective things, discussions. What, well, what do you mean by that? That there's a lot involved? Well, I mean, we can just break it down. Number one, you know, we already talked about why would you present one objective to learners with a different objective to yourself. We can look at Mager's three criteria, right? Um, he talked about, you know, a good instructional objective should have the performance you want the learners to be able to do, the conditions under which they should perform those things, and the criteria for success or failure, right? Performance, conditions, criteria. Now, that's a very good, um, that's a very good set of criteria. Those three things are a very good set of things for us as instructional designers, as learning architects. We need those things when we're developing, um, but they're not what the learners need. The learners do not need that criteria thing. In fact, there's so much research done in the 1960s on learning objectives. It was done by my dissertation advisor, the great Ernie Rothkopf, the guy that invented or coined the term methemogenic, um, which means to give rise to learning. He was the one, with a bunch of other people, but he was the, the main guy who did the research on learning objectives. And he showed that learning objectives, if you presented them to learners, they could be very effective. They could be monumentally effective if you worded them correctly. You couldn't use general statements because general statements didn't really connect to people, people's cognitive machinery. They had to be very specific. They had to use the exact words. Um, he discovered, he did this great experiment with uh, Billington and uh, she and he uh, used uh, eye movement data, and they looked to see where people looked in the learning material. And if you presented a learning objective beforehand, people would pay more attention to the learning material uh, related to that learning objective than other parts of the learning material. And what's really interesting, they would actually, if you gave a learning objective, people would pay less attention to the non uh, focal or the non-learning objective related material than if you didn't give a learning objective. So in and other words, both of these are bad because what's that say? What's that? It, it's bad if I focus on what the, the the objective targets me on to, and it's bad if I don't focus on what it doesn't target me toward. Because well, no, it's good. It's it's good. You know, it's helpful to be focused toward the most important information. Okay. But a lot of people write instructional texts or give lectures and they feel like all the information is really valuable. And we can see what learning objectives do. They focus people's attention on the information that's targeted by the learning objectives and push people away from the information that's not targeted 
Now, can you give 100 learning objectives to people before they start your classroom training? Probably not. They would probably run screaming for the doors. So you gotta sort of figure out how to prioritize. Uh, but that, that research was just phenomenal. But think about this. What that research showed was that learning objectives helped focus people's attention. But, oh my gosh, Matt, is that the only thing in the world that focuses people's attention? No, of course not. There's many things that focus people's attention. So if that's what learning objectives were doing, why do we need them in the first place? Could we use them occasionally and not every time and scare the heck out of people? Or could we use them more strategically? Or could we use other methods like, hey, Matt, uh, look at this particular part. I want you to pay particular attention to this concept here. That's a way you just shout out, say, hey, pay attention. You can use white space in material. White space helps things pop out. Um, you could use animations or uh, color or, or you know, lots of things, music. I mean, there's many ways to get people to focus attention. We don't need learning objectives. Right? I started calling them focusing object objectives to disambiguate them from the typical instructional objectives. So focusing objectives are things you present to learners before they encounter the learning material to help them focus on the most important material and instructional objectives could be those that we use for ourselves. And to differentiate this, if I'm using focusing objectives, in other words, I'm calling something out right now, right before I cover it to get you to think about it, usually those are gonna be either cognitive objectives or, or, or knowledge-based objectives, right? Yeah. Because that's different than an objective where I'm gonna have you practice a process and, and develop uh, um, uh, fluidity in using that process. That's different well, but, well, or not. Well, a process can still have many cognitive elements to it, right? Well, I just mean like uh, if I'm literally uh, 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 climbing up a pole and, and wiring two things together, that's, that's a fairly technical thing and sure it's got some knowledge aspects that i need before i can climb the pole uh and do that but well, the but the act of climbing up the pole do i do i highlight an objective for that well you might you might say um uh your learning objective could be something like um well focus focusing objective, focusing right? objective could be something like um <clears throat> make sure the heel of your boot is firmly got it aligned with the peg that you're pointing to, you know, that you're stepping on okay so, got it got it yeah that's still a cognitive aspect of that and that would then people the then people when they get a lecture or saw a video on how to do it that's sort of um you know a, a way to make sure all right this is what i really need to pay attention to and our objectives that are fairly general and generic useful at all like is it useful for me to say, now, pay close attention, don't fall? Is that a useful thing well, to that, highlight? That is, no, that that is not useful. And in fact, even like uh, I used to teach a course on um, how to push, how to champion change. Mm -hmm. So if I have a learning, if the title of the course is how to champion change to be a better leader or something, 
and then I have a learning objective, you will learn how to champion change. That does nothing because they've already seen the title of the course, right? So champion change is too broad. Um, now, if it said something more specific, like um, you will know how to use the four steps of the Delta change process, that might be a little bit helpful. But even better would be something like um, the first thing in the First thing in the Delta change process is XXXX. Now pay close attention. Here's the first step that we want you to employ back on the job. Yeah, see now okay. that, that's a, that you're giving a great example of why we may not even need to use a objective in that. Uh, but I want to highlight that we don't need to call out the notion of don't die when you're climbing the pole. As no, a, no, no. Right? That's just going to be in sort of a name. Right. No, that's not useful. It's got to be very specific. The research they did, uh, Rothkoff and others, um, they used uh, specific words versus general mm -hmm. words. And the general words had much less impact, um, hardly any compared to those that were very specific. So the word matters. So if you're using the delta change process, the key word there is delta. So let me, let me complicate this a little bit further. Um, I'm a believer that we should have not only instructional objectives, not only focusing objectives, but also what I call evaluation objectives. That when we're designing a learning program, that before we even come up with our instructional objectives, we should have our evaluation objectives. So let me give you an example. So um, an evaluation objective well, let me define it first. An evaluation objective is uh, an evaluation objective is the thing that we're aiming to measure. So let's say we're teaching coaching. And so we first decide how we're going to measure it. And then we have a negotiation with our stakeholders. Do you agree that this is a good way of measuring things? So you get that nailed down first, and then you create your instructional objective. So let's say it's a coaching course. Um, so we might say, okay, uh, we will, one of our evaluation objectives for this coaching course will be to uh, survey. Uh, we're going to use this actual diagnostic on coaching. We're going to give the diagnostic to the, not to the learners, not to the coaches, but to the people the coaches are going to coach. We're going to give it to people one month after the training program ends and we're going to um, get a diagnostic, we're gonna get diagnostic feedback on how well the coaches are doing. That's gonna be one of our evaluation objectives. And maybe we'll say you gotta score 80% or higher, whatever mm -hmm. the threshold is. Another evaluation objective for this course might be, okay, you are going to have to answer um, 20 scenario-based questions and get at least 15 of them correct. Okay, so we set out these evaluation criteria first, these evaluation objectives first, then we design our instructional objectives, then we design our focusing objectives if we think we need them. So I, I like that. So in summary, we have objectives that, that are targeted to different audiences. So focusing objectives are gonna be targeted toward our participants. We have evaluative uh, and learning objectives that are targeted toward designers and stakeholders for how we uh, uh, design ahead of time and evaluate 
throughout that process. And is there a fourth type of objective? Well, you can have many kinds of objectives. I, I once listed like a taxonomy of objectives. I don't even remember what all those on there, but there's, you can have an objective for, you know, sort of motivational objectives, what people should care about affectively. Um, you can have, uh, I don't know, I don't forget what my whole list was, but you can, you can so create any kind of- So instead of bloom, we need Talheimer's taxonomy of- No, no, it was, no, it was not, <laughs> a, it was not a definitive, see, <laughs> this is how, this is how bloom is probably rolling over in his grave, but- You, you know, should be so lucky. I, yeah, I should <laughs> be in the grave. <laughs> No more worries, no more cares. <laughs> um, I just, I created it really as a thought exercise to get us thinking about objectives. Well, and this, this really brings us into our next segment, right? Which is, what is the purpose of training? You know, if we, we take a step back from the, the, the specific objectives we look at within a design or within a course, and we step back or move up to a higher level in the sky looking down, what is the purpose of training in general? Uh, is the purpose to meet the needs of the, 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 the company that pays the bill? Or is there something a little more, more global, more important? And, uh, and uh, a few days ago, I raised this question on LinkedIn. And, Boy, did you ever. <laughs> and, uh, and to be fair, this actually came about because of you. As I mentioned earlier, this, this started because you uh, pushed back on me when I said it, 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 the purpose of training. Uh, the purpose of training is to teach people knowledge and skills to accomplish specific tasks within the workplace. And, and that came about because we were differentiating education uh, from training and you said is there really a difference it's kind of silly to think about that it's it's almost banal and you start pushing back on me and saying well why can't training be more than just teaching knowledge and skills that the cfo wants to pay for why isn't it more than that and and so i shared that insight on linkedin and uh, and I'll admit, uh, you were kind and called it a Socratic endeavor, uh, but it was really to, 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 to be uh, uh, provocative. Well, you raised the question, and interestingly, you raised it over the holidays when no one's paying attention. I didn't think anyone you know, was going to pay attention, right? Exactly, and it exploded. It created a lot it's of It's still going. There are 44 more comments I haven't responded to yet. Well, and when people come back from the holidays, you know, starting January 6th, it's going to explode again. I hope um, not. I want it to die. But, but, but so one of the premises is that the only reason we do training is because uh, the organization that's sponsoring us wants to get a good result. And so we should do what the organization says we should do. And we shouldn't care about whether it's necessarily good for the learners or not, for their careers, for their, you know, obviously for their jobs, hopefully, but um, for other people as well. So it's a very provocative. Uh, well, and, and should we care about the community? 
Probably the community, the society, the environment. There are a lot of companies. This is becoming big in Europe. It's, it's interesting because it's, it's called green, going green, which to me has always been, uh, I'm sorry, it's not going green, it's, it's sustainability. And to me, sustainability was originally about going green, you know, focusing on uh, the, your, your carbon footprint and, and you know, uh, helping to, to reduce our, our, our uh, global warming problem, which is significant, right? And, but sustainability in Europe, at least, I'm not totally sure how it's going in the US, has taken on uh, a bigger role, not just around global warming and, and climate control, and, but also how are we supporting our community at large? And so if companies are taking that, we were talking about this in your interview with Roger Kaufman. Um, and I, I just find it so valuable a uh, thing, but if companies are taking this perspective, well then shouldn't training organizations as well. How do you as a training organization uh, relate within your company uh, that's focusing on sustainability if you don't look beyond just the, the financial or initial stakeholder outcomes, then you're, you're inconsistent. Well, let me, let me back up. Back in the 1990s, those of us who were in corporate training, one of the mantras that we were supposed to teach to our management people if we were in leadership development was that your whole goal or our whole goal as an organization is to support shareholder value. But the only reason our corporation exists is to increase the shareholder value. So everything we do should support the organization, which should support shareholder value. Um, and that was the mantra through the 1990s, the 2000s. But recently, just this past August, the Business Roundtable came out and said, wait a minute. And the Business Roundtable, by, way, by the way, is a group of uh, CEOs from the giant global companies. So the most powerful CEOs in the country, in the world. And they said, no, 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 no. The goal of a corporation is not just to support the corporation and support shareholder value, is to take a much more uh, broad look at uh, the benefits to the many and to the society and the environment, et cetera. So I want to reiterate um, that if you are a training organization within a company that espouses this value, how can you then just view training as having a sole purpose of meeting the shareholders? Well, we don't usually term it in shareholders. We do term it. Or stakeholder. Well, we talk about it in business results. Right. Our goal is to get business results. If we're not focused on getting business results, we're not going to have a seat at the table. And if we don't have a seat at the table, nobody's going to pay attention to us and we will be irrelevant. We'll all be fired. <laughs> so that, that's, well, that's that, that was actually a perfect imitation of, of what I think people say. Yeah. That's what people have been saying. And we've been all, we all sort of have bought into this. And there's several of us, a bunch of us are beginning to say, well, wait a minute. Shouldn't we think about the benefits to the employees, the ones we train? 
Shouldn't we think about the benefits to uh, the employee's coworkers? How, it, how the training affects them, maybe the employee's families, maybe the communities, the society, the environment, et cetera. Is there any research though that you're aware of that shows a correlation between more satisfied employees, uh, their overall well-being improved, and business outcomes? Well, that's not my area of expertise. I focus on learning. I mean, I've heard in headlines uh, and by, uh, I don't know, you know, I've heard through headlines and through experts that um, people say that if you're more socially, if your organization is more socially responsible, that you're going to have better outcomes. Now, I, I can't verify that one way or the other, but the argument goes, look, if your employees are more passionate uh, around your vision that your company is doing something good in the world, that they're going to be uh, they're going to work harder, they're going to be smarter, be more innovative, and then you'll get better results. But there is work done in self-determination theory, um, the motivation uh, theory that, that I've ascribed to over the years, and we've talked about it before. Uh, work that many researchers, but I'm going to include uh, Marilyn Gagnier and Jacques Forêt, um, and I'll put where they're from and some citations from them that show a correlation in well-being, improving, and work performance. And one of the uh, strong correlations is if you see people working for integrated or identified reasons, both of which uh, correlate to overall senses of well-being, and of course for intrinsic reasons, then you see a very strong uh, correlation to longer-term sustained performance. Uh, you see people working with high levels of energy. You see people working uh, because they see innate value in, in what they do and purpose. When people's sense of well-being is reduced, you see greater levels of burnout and greater levels of uh, people leaving, which of course has a business outcome of, of having to pay for low retention and training new employees and so forth. And of course, that cycle uh, continuing. And, and so there is, there is actually research in the self-determination community uh, that, that supports this. Well, and I think a lot of entrepreneurs um, think the same thing. So when they're developing a new company, a, you know, a company that's going to change the world, they motivate their employees by talking about that change and everybody rallies around that and they work crazy hours and you know there's that also um there's a great quote i found uh from the american psychological association when they talk about employee development and growth and they say what well, it's you know they, they say that employee growth opportunities are one of the essential elements in a healthy workplace environment and here's the quote the opportunity to gain new skills and experiences can increase employee motivation and job satisfaction and help workers more effectively manage job stress. This can translate into positive gains for the organization by enhancing organizational effectiveness and improving work quality, as well as by helping the organization attract and retain top quality employees. 
Okay, so all this is good. I wanna call us on being a little bit sloppy here because we're talking about factors in the workplace that overall improve satisfaction and well-being, right? Now, the sloppy part is, how are we correlating having personalized, individualized objectives that meet some of the individual needs of employees to that overall well-being in their overall work? So if we focus this on learning, uh, is that directly, if, if we personalize a, a learning outcome to you in a workshop, does that okay. link to your overall sense of well-being? Okay, so let's, let's try to trace the causal pathway here, because I okay. think you're right, we've been a little messy here. So normally what we've done is we've focused on business objectives or organizational objectives. When we've done that, we've ignored, we haven't included any objectives about the benefits to the learners or society or the environment, et cetera. So when we don't have objectives, and remember we're talking about objectives influencing behavior. If we don't have those objectives, we are likely as learning architects not to design our training programs, our learning efforts in a way that's going to reach those goals. I mean, presumably we are influenced by these goals. So those kind of, the kind of things that will get us to these endpoints are unlikely to be in our training programs. And if they're, and then following the causal pathway, if they're not in our training programs, then uh, the learners are unlikely to get the benefits. Society is less likely to get the benefits. We're not going to think about the environment. So we'll maybe have more training that requires air travel and that pollutes the environment, et cetera. And then this kind of thing will not attract the best employees because the training they get is not as good, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then that will bleed up into the actual organizational results and the results to these other type of um, objective targets that we have. So I'm sold. However, we've also been sloppy by not inviting someone who disagrees with us to come on and present their view. What, let's put some words in our friend's mouths. So we know that our friend Guy thinks a little differently than us. What is Guy's argument? Guy Wallace. Uh, well, Guy on LinkedIn, maybe we should just read the LinkedIn comments, Matt. But I think if I remember correctly, what Guy said was, uh, he who pays the piper calls the tune. There's some legitimacy to that, isn't there? I mean, we've been speaking on a philosophical and values-based level, but on a practical level, if I'm paying for it, why shouldn't you do what I want? Well, true. The organization is paying our salaries. Uh, it is paying the salaries of the employees. But this sort of, you know, is over, uh, it's sort of an oversimplification in the sense that the only currency is not just the money that flows from the organization to us. We are, we as employees, we're human beings. We have some inherent worth and dignity and we pay as well. We pay with our time, with our attention. Uh, sometimes we pay with our bodily health, our stress level we are paying a currency into this relationship as well. You know, ideally, we are not slaves to the organization, right? 
It's a two-way street. We join employment. It's a mutual arrangement. The organization gets benefits from it. We as employees get benefits from it. So in that case, we as employees have some, we're, we're paying as well. So we have a right to negotiate what we want and what we care about. So it's not just a one-way idea that the organization pays the piper and that they ought to call the tune is a, is a rather acronistic one. Let's simplify this because there's many stakeholders we talked about. We talked mm -hmm. about uh, learners, learners, coworkers, their family. We talked about a community, society, the environment, the environs. But let's simplify it. Just talk about the learners themselves and the organization. Okay. So I'm developing a training course. And if I try to design it sort of as big brother, this is the way it should be done. And I don't think about the relevance to my learners. If I don't think about the what's in it for them, right? Mm -hmm. Then they're going to pay less attention. And the training's not going to be as effective in the first place. So in some way, it's a win-win situation if I do take into account both my learners' benefits and the organizational benefits. So we've had motivational reasons. We've had compliance reasons, uh, the flip side motivationally, right? So if I find a way to meet your needs as a participant, you will most likely be more compliant in learning the things that I as a stakeholder may want you to learn. Well, compliance, not the right word. That sounds like you're... Well, I want to manipulate. I'm into manipulating. You get people to do what you want in any way you can. Yeah, but compliant has the... You know, I'm smiling, folks. I'm 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 saying that sardonically. Yeah, you people, you your listeners should know that Matt is a wonderful humanitarian, and he's just playing devil's advocate for the benefit. That's right. The problem I'm having with this segment, which I initiated, is is Will and I both agree, and and I feel like that there should be representation from the other side. Uh, pushing back at us authentically instead of us throwing out probably inauthentic representations of that perspective. Well, Matt, let's just let's just argue that the weight of tradition has been pushing the other way for so long that we are just trying to make it a little bit of a fair fight. And in two years, when the pendulum has gone the other way, Will and I will agree we should be focused more on stakeholder and shareholder perspective. We're here with my friend, my colleague, and someone I've admired greatly for her work on interactive webinars, online learning, Cassie Labori. Cassie, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Matt and Will. It's a pleasure. Um, I have to tell you, we wanted to wait until we got a little better at this to invite you because we didn't we didn't want to appear so incompetent having you with us. So, well, thanks for the heads up. I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah. Matt, um, come I'll, on. I'll... <laughs> you, Will, you gave me feedback that I was supposed to be more authentic and honest and open and share. Okay, that's true. So All right, here Cassie, I do it. Cassie, we're not very good at this, but we'd love to have you on our show. Thank you very much. So wait, did you guys just break that rule of you just opened with an apology? Yeah. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Nice. I, I forgot I wasn't supposed to apologize. 
Oh, oh man. Oh man. Oh this man. Is horrible. Hey, but you know what? Now it feels really real and comfortable and I'm good. I know. I feel Thank relaxed you. now. It might be too. the two beers though I have right before we start recording. <laughs> we are ah. recording late on a Friday afternoon, just in case. <laughs> and and I took one of those super pseudofeds that kind of put you to sleep. So I am seeing three of Will right now. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Fun. So, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Cassie, I, I we are lucky enough to to know you and stuff. But can you give a, a you're you're the author of one of my favorite books, Interact uh-huh. and Engage, that you wrote with Tom Stone. But can you give us a little bit of background on who you are and what you do uh, beyond the book? Ah, thank you. I'd love to. Um, besides the vintage Barbie collecting and obsession with shoes and lipstick. All right, are you talking about me or you? <laughs> Oh, right, me. Okay. (laughs) So a long time ago, in in a land far, far away, uh, I was a Microsoft trainer, and I was teaching people how to use software as a Microsoft trainer. Uh, This is, uh, I was teaching front page. We'll take it way back. (laughs) I know. I was a baby. (laughs) I uh, use front page. I know. I I don't, I only used it to teach it (laughs) in all fairness. So uh, I had gotten a degree in speech communication with an emphasis in theater and performance. And I decided during that time at San Francisco State Uh, that I wanted to be working in learning and development as a trainer. And so when I was in school, actually my professors allowed me to do activities uh, in class. And a lot of those were based in theater, but then we were bringing them into a a learning environment in school. And that's probably the base of, you know, where, where, where I started to love what I do and, um, you know, how can I find a job doing this? Cause, cause I knew early on that I didn't actually want to be an actor full-time like that trying to beg for a job all the time because I hated auditioning and so that's a a big problem if that's what you want to do and so when I found (laughs) training I I thought hey that's an actor in the business world (laughs) that's right (laughs) well you know what I like to say is people like me and Will we have faces for radio (laughs) I heard you say that before (laughs) that's our that's our running joke in this Yeah, show. now he's done yeah. it twice in this episode. Oh I know, God. but now I get to decide which one to cut. So. <laughs> so, but, so, so Cassie, when were you in San Francisco? Were, were we there the uh, same time? I was there, it would have been uh, all through the 90s and okay. early 2000. And then I moved up to Vancouver, British Columbia after that and spent the 10 years there, 12 years there, and then moved to New York after that. So uh, we were in San Francisco until 2004. Oh my gosh. We were probably there at the same time. And then Rochester, we have that in common too. You started at the beginning of sort of the virtual webinar uh, explosion, the era with WebEx. I did. I did. So that's the whole Bay Area connection. So I'm driving down the 101 because I used to drive all over the Bay Area delivering these Microsoft classes. And there was a RuPaul ad campaign running with WebEx. RuPaul would say, we've got to start meeting like this. And the other one was, uh, meetings used to be a real drag. <laughs> if you look this up, it's amazing. I thought I wanna work there. And so I'm doing my Microsoft trainer gig and then WebEx was hiring. And so I went there. I was hired right away as a senior product trainer, actually product trainer, and then moved into senior. And 
they gave me a boa and the beach ball. And if you do a quick Google of this, you'll see what I'm talking about. And it was amazing. It was an amazing time. That was 1999 that I started working for WebEx. And, uh, you know, the world changed a couple of years after that. And meeting online became even more important and necessary. And I found myself doing something I loved, performing, teaching people software, and uh, working with a very, uh, you know, tech forward company in an industry that I loved. That's great. And so you now focus on virtual training, is that right? I do. So what would happen is people would come to my class. I was teaching clients how to use WebEx and people would come and they'd say, we get where to click, but how do we be like you? How do we make it so people want to be here and they want to pay? And so I started uh, teaching people how to do that. You know, how to bring um, engaging learning experiences, uh, effective ones, uh, interactive ones into, into this, this clicking world, you know. And back then, webcams would make everything break. And so we needed to use, you know, chats and whiteboards and other features. Breakouts didn't even exist at WebEx when I first started working there. And so when we got breakouts, we thought everything would be fixed. And uh, then we were terrified of breakouts. And they weren't fixing everything. Well, <laughs> they were technic learning technically strategy. they would break. I mean, well, they technically they would break. And then just because you're putting people into a group doesn't mean that, you know, the learning's working. So. But, uh, but once they got better, then, you know, we had more opportunities. And uh, I started working uh, on contract with uh, Jennifer Hoffman at NSYNC Training. That was really fun. And that introduced me to all the other different platforms out there besides WebEx. And, uh, and then from there, Dale Carnegie found me. And wow. we built Dale Carnegie Digital together. I was on the leadership team uh, that, that built that. We took a 100-year-old company, the, the training and learning experiences that they'd been building all that time. And um, help build the product, develop the people, you know, work with the strategy and figure out how to do Dale Carnegie training in a live online environment. And so that's what wow. I did for six years. And that would be Matt when I met you. That's right. We met in Vegas. In Vegas. That's right. We were, uh, it was uh, one of the ATD tech learns, right? Yes, that's right. Yeah. I always I've had the great honor of speaking at these different conferences, even while I was working at Carnegie. And uh, it was two years ago, two and a half years ago, I decided to launch my own independent consultancy. And that's what I do today. And so I work with global and, uh, and national organizations, their learning teams, typically, uh, helping them figure out how to do virtual training. And so that would include teaching them the technology, but it mostly includes strategy for, for being in this environment. And um, certainly it, it is the materials too, figuring yep. out how to put those things together. But I run programs all the time, teaching people the design delivery and production side of virtual classroom training. You know, that's great. You know, I, I'm curious, uh, you must see people that are somewhat new to it, right? And I'm really curious as to sort of what their misconceptions are uh, when they come to you. Uh, Generally speaking, almost every person that I work with is new to it, um, though they, they're, they're not necessarily new. They're new to doing it right. So I, I have kind of like two sets of clients where I have the ones that are brand new and they want to do it right. And so they do all the research and they say, we've, we've found you and we know that you can help and we want to start right from the beginning. Uh, but then there's the other clients that try to do it. They've, you know, their, their IT department has given them their logins and they've been doing it and it's 
it's not working. Mm. And then, then they go about researching, wait, this is supposed to work. Everyone likes it. What's wrong with us? And so then they come to us. And I think if, if we're looking at misconceptions, probably one of the biggest ones for the people that are brand new to it uh, is that it's not going to be as difficult as they think or, th or that it ends up being. Like they think if we just train the trainers on how to use the software, that will be enough. Mm. I think that's, that's kind of a misconception because as soon as they get in and they start learning, okay, yeah, trainers need to learn how to do this and they need to learn the software, but oh, we need to design materials for this environment because what I'm using in person isn't working here. And the way that I'm connecting with people is a little more challenging than I thought it would be and, you know, and what I've been doing. And, and also I probably need to work with IT a little more than I have. Uh, and if we're going to be connecting internally, we have to make sure all the systems are going to work. And then externally, clients, we have to communicate. So there's a marketing angle, you know. And it, it's more than just teach the trainers how to use the Zoom. Ah, so, so one of the misconceptions is people think they can take their slides, their PowerPoints from their classroom training and just port it into uh, an online situation and it'll work. And then they don't even think about all the, the marketing aspects, getting people to it and the technology as well. Yeah. And then I think too, they, that's exactly right. And then they think also that it's going to be about the same thing that they do in person. And so that they don't need to teach the participants how to learn here. I think that's a really big one that people don't even know is a problem, but attendees wow. don't know how to learn here at all. They think oh, wow. they click a link and then, then it works. You know, people are surprised that they have to come off mute or that they even have to have a headset. Um, I've had people say, why are you calling on me? I'm, I'm in another meeting. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. So, the, you know, because what you have when you think of online training, people think of um, the asynchronous, the, I'm, I'm, the e-learning amazing world that exists, but I'm going to be by myself and I'll manage this on my own and click through it. And so they're not expecting it to be um, like what it is when we are together in person. You know, that's really interesting. I find we have the same problem in live training. So, <laughs> well, so if we, uh, when Tiagi and I go into a, a classroom, many people aren't used to immediate interactive strategies thrown at them. Interesting. So the idea that we're going to ask them to stand up, move around, write stuff, talk to each other, uh, think, um, deliver, uh, that they're going to engage in simulations for, if it's a two-day course, literally two full days, that uh, the amount of lecture will be reduced significantly, and there'll mm -hmm. be games and activities wrapped around that. So the idea of full activity, we have to train people to do that. Yeah, exactly. And you have to do that every time online too, because certainly right. the expectation online is I'm going to click a link. I'm going to let it play in the background <clears throat> while I get my real work done. So I, I have a theory and um, I, would, I want both of you to attack me. So Cassie, attack me from a practical standpoint and Will, attack me from a theoretical standpoint. He, by the way, the knife is blunt. You don't have to worry about it. <laughs> for, for our listeners, Will is holding up that knife he likes to hold up. And, and that rusty old knife. And, I got, I got Cassie, two of them today. Cassie is holding up a magic wand. That's right. 
It's pink so, and glittery, by the way. <laughs> here's my, my theory. Live learning, instructor-led face-to-face training is functionally not that much different than virtual live online learning in terms of how we structure activities and how we present content and how we can get participants to do things now that the technology's caught up, that the, it still requires good instructional design, still requires us to think about the learning outcomes uh, as designers, it still forces us to think about how we get the participants to engage with the content and the material and demonstrate proficiency as they learn, that it's a mistake for us to put a line that separates e-learning, online synchronous learning, and instructor-led learning and, and call them separate. And okay, Cassie, you go first. You can attack them first. Well, I wasn't going to, there's no attack because I'm in agreement, though I do think uh -huh. that, Yes. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I know. But the thing is, is that the, the, the approach, you know, the way that you go about it, I'm not sure that you, like, your last statement is where I do think that, okay, so how do, fundamentally, I agree with you, but you have the way that people come into the environment so completely different in each of the three that you described at the end. But isn't that true? When I have people come into a face-to-face -face workshop and I'm gonna throw them into a simulation and they've never no. done that before? No, because I know how to talk when I come into a face-to-face -face environment. When I am virtual, I don't even know how to unmute myself. I didn't know that I had to click that to do that. Uh, I'm gonna agree with, I'm gonna agree with Cassie here, Matt. You know, I think you're right at a meta level that yeah. certain design elements have to be in place for all those different modalities, but we have different affordances, different things we can do in each. Like in a classroom, I can get people to stand up and maybe align themselves on one <coughs> side of the room if they believe this, on the other side of the room if they believe that. There's a very visual element to that. I can't do that exact same thing online i can do something different now online i can do other things well sure the mechanics of the activity are going to be different but the the idea of getting them to do an activity is the same oh yeah it's the same yeah, but the way you do it is different. And the way that you have to do it virtual classroom is a way that is unknown. The way that we do it in person, I we've known since that. we were little. Like, I accept that. We talk about that a lot. I say, <clears> when did you learn how to learn? And people say, well, I was little. I was little. I was a little kid. My, my, I went to preschool, maybe. You know, I thought, like, I didn't have to teach anybody. When I'm teaching in person, I didn't have to teach anyone how to walk through the door and choose their seat. No, but you also didn't have to teach anyone really how to use a telephone. No, but I do, in a virtual classroom, have to teach you how to join properly, how to connect your microphone. You know, people don't dial in properly. I mean, I didn't have to teach them how to use the phone, but they don't dial in properly, especially in WebEx, that damn attendee ID number. Oh, that's WebEx. So that's WebEx. <laughs> yeah. first, of all, first of all, I do have a huge bias for Zoom. So Zoom has, Zoom has made life so much easier. And WebEx Zoom was has, definitely more complex. Well, Zoom has re removed the barrier of the cameras. Now we all yeah. want to be on camera. And yeah. now I think that, you know, what I'm, what I'm seeing with the clients that I'm working with that use Zoom, which I, I too love Zoom very much, 
um, we have to get beyond the camera now because just because I'm sitting here looking at you doesn't mean that now we're all learning and it's magic. <laughs> right. Just because you're staring at me doesn't mean you're not asleep. Well, right, and there is the there is the potential for a, the talking head problem as well. We have to be careful of that now that we can do it. Right, right. It's, it's beyond potential. It is reality. So, <laughs> I, I don't want to imply that that I think that the mechanics are the same, and and I don't want to imply people know how to handle the tech. My father would 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 commit suicide if I made him get on Zoom. I mean, he, he FaceTimed me yesterday and it was an accident and I, I showed up and he said, your face, your face, what is, <laughs> what's going on? So, so I, I certainly get that the tech it can be problematic and challenging, but I, I just want to highlight that the notion, the, the idea around the pedagogy, I'm not sure that needs to be delineated separately. Uh, yeah. What do you think, Will? I, I agree. I would like to know. Cassie, what kind of things you help people focus on in terms of design elements to make a good virtual experience, a good virtual learning experience? Connection. They, they want to focus, and I want to help them focus first on connecting with people and being um, real, <laughs> you know, um, the, the human connection, the using people's names you know, paying attention to as a person's name appears on the participant panel. If, if a person walked through a room and, and we were face to face, would you be like, who are you? Who just walked in the room? <laughs> no, it'd be awkward and weird. And so how do we take, you know, uh, I don't want to use the word normal, but what's commonly accepted human interaction non-verbally and then put that into this environment so that we can start to make this feel real and live too. So oh, I that, agree with you. I agree with you so much. I, one of the, you know, the early generation of e-learning, the thing that it was missing was the humanity. There was no connection at all. So, Oh, right. the humanity. Uh, I, what's that? <laughs> Oh, the humanity. Oh, the humanity. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It's true. Yeah, people say things that they just would never say in person. You know, that like, who's just walked in the room? You wouldn't say that. It, it reminds me of, do you guys remember that video that the, um, a conference call in real life? No. Those oh. guys did. It's, it's been did a while. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just great, just the ridiculous things that, that we wouldn't do in person because so much of it's managed via nonverbal communication. <laughs> These things that we're doing online are just things we would never do, you know. <laughs> All right, we, should, we, should, we should get the YouTube version of that. For oh, the I love that. Notes. I'll I get it, that. yeah, it's wonderful. It's, it makes you just cry laughing and it was made many years ago and it's still, it's still so relevant and so the same. Well, <laughs> I, I think one of the things I love about the video though is we, we're, we're able to bring some of that back. And um, like we, one of the things I like to do, we, we do magic tricks now on Zoom. We can do magic tricks with Zoom that we, using the same tricks we do in real life. Like, okay, Cassie, I'm holding up an index card. Uh -oh, so here you go. Cassie, can you see the index card? Yes. Okay, good. So Cassie, I want you to think of a number between one and 10 and tell me, quick, 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 tell Out me. Loud? Yeah, quick, quick. Four. 
Uh, oh, never mind. Uh, uh, it's seven. So, oh, yeah. You, you okay, were close. So, yeah, yeah. I, I, get, I get it right one out of ten times. So, <laughs> magic trick or just uh, yeah, what was or luck. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. Anyway, but we can do this kind of engagement with people, uh, whether it's a stupid uh, trick that fails like that. Mm -hmm. Or we can we can get people on video to to talk to each other. We can pick people, and and all, in a, in a way we can jump from person to person in ways that we we are able to do live, but we weren't able to do traditionally in previous webinar uh, formats. That's right. And you know, on that note, because webcam via Zoom, thank you Zoom, is becoming more accepted and more common, and we're less afraid of it. I am finding that now we're needing to focus in on how do we be, as you've just described, while on camera. So there's this, okay, I'm on, I'm fine, but then my background must be perfect. I have to have my stylist put together my hair and makeup, and now I must stare into the camera as if yes. I am a newscaster the entire time, you know? Chin down, <laughs> so, chin down, so you look thinner. Yeah, like how do we now be normal and do things? And right. so I will have people practice just being silly and goofy and doing things and, um, I just try to be real on it all the time. And, and I have not to perfect. remind people to blink. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, if you don't blink, you're creepy. Yeah, so yeah. Sure, yeah. I've, I've had yeah. The, I had that problem recording videos. I, I yeah, know. Crazy. Will, and right now I need you to blink. You're scaring me. There you go. People, um, the people don't think that they should be uh, comfortable or real on camera. They they think that they should smile and, and stare yeah. into it and never look away. And I'm like, no, I think actually we need to be real. Yeah. So let's focus on just being normal. And, you know, sometimes it's okay to slouch and it's okay to look away, you know? Okay. All right. I, I'm going to be crass. How many horrible things have you seen people do when they forget they're on camera? Yeah. Um, that is this where right. we want to go with this? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll tell you one quick one. That's okay. my favorite. Right. Um, this woman was done presenting and she thought that the recording was off and that everybody was gone and she stood up and took off her shirt. Really? Yeah. Oh, that never happens. No, I, no. What, I've only what, had like nose picks and things yes, like that. I, that's picks. the yeah, those are the worst ones I've had. That's it. Leaving, wow. leaving too, like you're teaching, but you're actually yeah. no longer at your desk. Yeah. Well, I, oh, what I, about I, the bathroom? Have you had bathroom? Like someone, someone's on a device and they bring the device the into the bathroom. Oh, yeah. All the time. And they forget they're on camera. Yeah. And then nice. they, oh, and the flush brings the video back to them. It's amazing. So all of a sudden with the flush sound, they're now forefront on Zoom. And what have like, you seen, oh. Bill? What have you? Well, no, I just remember just in the, in the old classroom days where you have the, uh, you have the uh, lavalier mic. Oh, yes. And you have to take a bathroom break and you forget right. to turn off the sound. Oh, That's all right. I, I've actually done that yeah. once. Yeah, that <laughs> a long uh, time ago. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, okay. So, so one of the things, you obviously spend a lot of time focused on the connection aspects. Um, and that obviously helps engagement. Engagement is part of the title of your book. What else do you do to uh, encourage this? meaningful engagement people need to learn the technology and they need to learn it and then get over it and so there's a lot of practice in um in in using all of these things and and so 
I'll always lead by by modeling what I'm expecting. So when we get in, I'll be like, how is everybody answer via the chat first? And then let's take turns on camera and they go, wait, where's the chat? <laughs> you know, or, uh, you know, share an interesting fact about you, common icebreaker, but put it on the whiteboard. Wait, how do I do that? You know, and so just getting really used to all of these tools and having the language become part of the regular vernacular of the virtual trainer and helping them practice that. I have a very simple activity where I go through asking questions. I go, let's just ask questions, but we're going to ask them as if we are in Zoom or WebEx or whatever the client's using. And you're going to tell us how to answer. And we have conversation around, why do I have to tell you how to answer? Because in person, I don't have to tell you how to answer me. Why do I not have to tell you how to answer me? Because you know that already. You were learning that when you were little, you know, and uh -huh. typically it's managed non-verbally anyway. I look at you and I want you to answer, <laughs> you know, online, nobody knows how to do that. And so we have to practice. And so I'll literally say, okay, who has the first question? Raise your hand. I'm like, just say that, practice saying that. And they'll go, who has the first question? Let's go to the participants panel and click on the raise hand button. And then once you, and I'll go, okay, wait, do it again. <laughs> you know? Do it again. All right, I'm going to go to the chat. And if everyone could open up their chat, we're going to brainstorm how we're going to pull on it. Stop. Do it again. <laughs> <You know? laughs> it's awkward to tell people how to answer or, you know, how to, how to, how to tell grownups how to communicate with you. It is awkward. And so you have to find your natural way to do that. Hmm. And that's getting comfortable in the technology and then making the technology and the use of those words part of regular speak for you. Cassie, is there a limitation? Is there a type of program or some content or, or something you wouldn't want to run virtually? Um, I think that's always going to come up. I, you know, I guess I think of you know, sort of classic examples. I know when I worked with Jennifer Hoffman, we used to talk about, you know, teaching the tango, like dancing, you know, and it seems like a pretty quick no, or, or maybe here's a really good one, like teaching my teenage son how to drive. Would we want to yeah. do it via Zoom? And it depends on, you know, your definition of drive, <laughs> but automatically our minds go to getting behind the wheel. And of course, getting behind the wheel needs to happen behind the wheel and not in this environment here. But that's not to say that there isn't a whole bunch that could be done here that perhaps is done better here. Mm. You know, so the some loss, of the, you know. Yeah. So some of the sort of psychomotor or uh, hands-on skill-based things, obviously we can get people started virtually, but we need to probably move that into something else to get them really skilled up. Um, but what about, you know, things that are still cognitive, but maybe are um, sensitive, like sexual harassment training or, uh, you know, something more emotionally uh, salient like that? Well, I think this is where webcams come in to play because we can see the humanity here and we can start to maybe be a little bit more vulnerable. And so things like sexual harassment, certainly that happens a lot. Those, those topics are happening a lot in the virtual classroom. And I think that they can be done quite well. In fact, I think there's times you turn off webcam and you can focus in on things that maybe people don't want to be seen for. And mm. they want, you know, even things like uh, other, other types of biases that people have. Maybe there's 
a slight, um, I want to say protection that we can have in the virtual classroom that will allow people to experience for a moment that might get them to a better place for learning those these sensitive topics than maybe what we could do in person. Wow. I mean, but I but I think a lot of times a virtual classroom is so much like in person. Maybe there's some safeties built into this that we don't have when we're together. You know, maybe. Hmm. I don't know. Now, kinda... Something you said just reminded me there's this research, um, you know, when people do brainstorming, uh, the research suggests that when they brainstorm individually, they're going to be more creative than if they brainstorm as a group. But they also found that brainstorming online, and this was sort of pre-webcam days, brainstorming online would create more creativity, more mm -hmm. uh, better ideations, uh, more diverse ideations than brainstorming in person. And a lot of that was felt because um, we, creativity really is a risk, right? <clears throat> You're risking wild ideas. So maybe if we're teaching online and we want people to brainstorm ways to use something or an idea or something or be creative, we might need to turn off the webcam temporarily or focus on the chat only for a while. Right. Um, it, it sort of makes everything a level playing field, if you will, and you don't have the the most talkative in the room taking over, the the most extro extroverted, uh, the most confident. Those people can mm. do better in person, you know, yeah. in a lot of ways because they just are more confident with it. They're okay with it. And there's people who get quiet and you can make everything quiet in the virtual classroom and then everything's the same. And it doesn't matter extrovert, introvert, if that's even a real thing. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't matter. The power dynamics too can probably disappear. You know, sometimes if you get like the CEO in the room, everybody shuts up or everybody keeps their comments, you know, on a very safe level. Whereas if you're online and, you know, you don't pay, you know, there's a bunch of people, you may not pay attention mm -hmm. um, to, you know, that power dynamic as much. I don't know. It just goes back to teaching people how to contribute because the, cause are, are, they, are they not participating or are they, are they not part of the brainstorm because they don't want to or because they don't know where to click. Hmm. And so you want to make sure it's not because they don't know where to click. So this is one of the things that I love about your book and I love about the stuff I see from you in general is you're very activities focused. So the book is broken into 50 activities. Mm -hmm. It's 50 activities, right? So you have openers, you have closers, you have, uh, we call them interactive lecture activities. You call them lesson lecture, and I love that. And um, so the, the activities are leveraging the text simply, but they're structures that get everybody to play, regardless of their disposition or preference for participating. They, they have no choice. They're going to play. That's right. Uh, right? Unless they and, don't. <laughs> well, yeah. But but the activities are designed to get them to play, and 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 this to me is what's lowered the bar for making virtual training effective. Mm -hmm. uh, it's mm -hmm. activities like these that 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 get people to engage with the material, engage with the content, and, and not just push a button. Right. 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 And so my favorite of your activity. Well, I actually have several. I love the website scavenger hunt. Yeah. That's, but uh, I, 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 just, I always like that one. Right. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, wait, 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 wait. You guys, you can't just do that, Matt. I All right, Cassie, tell us what that is first. <laughs> the the short of it is you send people on a scavenger hunt to, you send people to find things outside of the virtual classroom. You send them, in this case, to a website. You could technically send them into software. So you, you put up some questions and you have people go find the answers and they come back and reveal them. And well, there's so great. many different ways to do it. You know, you can do it individually, you can do it in breakouts, you can send people to websites, you send the link in the chat. Um, you can have them open up software and give them commands to, you know, spit out certain things. And, and what's, what's the benefit in, of that? Well, they're busy and they're doing it on their own. And rather than let me take you to the website and show you where all the answers are, what questions do you have? You know, you have, <laughs> here are the questions. Go find the answers. First person back gets to leave a minute early, you know, or <laughs> whatever. Yeah. And then, and they're becoming more, um, they're becoming stronger remote team members. You know, they're becoming um, stronger with their tech skills, you know, outside of whatever you're having them go to do on the website. You know, they're, they're managing multiple windows you know, and they're all over the place. And most people love it. Most people, not all. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I would think that that would be excellent for like IT training because of some IT training that I've seen is that it's a presentation and people, the learners are looking at it and say, oh, I can do that. I can do that. But they've never been asked to actually do it by doing the scavenger hunt idea. You're asking them to go in but, you know, navigate around the system and come back with answers. So that seems like more natural the way they're really going to do it. Especially if you haven't already taught them the exact thing that you have them hunt. Uh, so, for example, maybe uh, you're in PowerPoint class. PowerPoint 101, you've learned how to animate a bulleted list. And now you send them into breakouts and they have to figure out how to animate it David Letterman style where they reveal the last one or the, the first one last. And you haven't taught them how to do that. And then the first group back, they're the winners. And then they take control and they show how it was done. <laughs> All right, Cassie, final word. What do you want to leave, leave the thousands and thousands of listeners of Truth and Learning with? <laughs> no pressure. Um, have fun. I'm just kidding. <laughs> hey, we don't Learn believe in technology. fun. Learn the technology. Be real. Focus on all these things that we've talked about today. And gosh. There's so much more to learn, isn't there? There it is. Yeah, Thank there's you, so Cassie. much we can do, you know, and I think uh, to be aware that I think the virtual classroom is more connected to what we're doing face-to-face -face than it is with the e-learning modules and the, the click-through training that we develop. And so taking the, the methodologies and the practices that we have in person <laughs> and bringing that into the virtual classroom is a great place to start and, and a great place to see what we can be um, capable of achieving in this environment. That's Cassie, great. it is great. And I really want to thank you. You know, like you said, we're sort of all now learning how to use these new technologies and they're getting better over time. So we have to keep learning. Um, it is wonderful to meet you in person, sort of, <laughs> yes. and uh, have you share your experiences. And Matt, thank you for inviting Cassie. Oh, Great. Hey, uh, Cassie, I just wanted to reiterate your book, Interact and Engage, uh, written with your co-author and husband, Tom Stone. And can I take a second and just do a shout out to, uh, for Tom's book? Oh, yes. Absolutely. I love Tom's book as a baseball <laughs> fan. Tom's book, Now Taking the Field, Baseball's All-Time Dream Teams for All 30 Franchises. And if you aren't interested in baseball, you should still read this book. 
because if you're into statistics, it's in there. If you're into how teams get formed and asking cool questions that are just like what ifs that you can use at a cocktail party, it's in there. It's just a great, fun book that you can just read and read and read. So wow. Highly recommend it's it true. from Tom. That sounds so cool now. Cassie, do you know the all-time best Red Sox team? I could one. look it up pretty quick, quickly for you. I know that it's one of the, the first 10 chapters. I know that. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm not as uh, deep of a fan as he is. I'm a very, very uh, strong I can't wait character. to meet him. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Thank you both for inviting me to be here today. And uh, stay tuned. Thank you for plugging the Interact and Engage book. And then stay tuned. I'm actively writing my second book right now. It'll be just me, though. Tom's not helping me with this one. Uh, it's, I'm, I'm hoping that the title will end up being Ready, Set, Produce, and it's on the mm. production side of virtual classroom and webinars. And, oh, I love it. You know, as a former tech trainer, that's very near and dear to my heart, all the tech. And so I'm excited to be uh, working through that as we speak. And, and did I hear that maybe you and Matt might uh, develop a course on how to use Zoom? No, 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 not might. We are. We are. That's right. <laughs> oh, that is so awesome. I'm going to take the course. And it's <laughs> scheduled for February 18. Wow. We can't it's wait. It's like a Valentine's yep. present almost. It is February 18, and it is called Speed Up Your Training Acumen with Zoom. Excellent. I can't wait. Training what? Acumen. Acumen. I'm sorry, Acumen. Cassie. Uh, Will makes fun of my accent. <laughs> I'm losing my hearing in my advanced age. That's because you're old. <laughs> so now we normally have a segment, Cassie, called Best and Worst. And we normally ask our guests to uh, stay with us and do that where we share our best and our worst in the learning industry over the last week or so. Hmm. However, we're not doing that this week. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, uh, we because it's New Year's, uh, this is our first recording of the new year, uh, we went out and asked a bunch of friends, colleagues, and, and listeners to send in uh, recordings of their New Year's resolutions. And oh. you were very kind to send one in for us. And so we are going to play that one as our first one. Uh, and then we will share the others. So, <laughs> excellent. <laughs> well, we'll see what I said. I forgot what I said. Just kidding. You do remember? Do you remember? Of course, I remember. Yes. All right. Why don't you tell us? And we won't do the recording. We'll do. We'll have you do it live. Oh gosh! But the recording was so good. I practiced it. Okay, we'll do you the did? recording. Okay. We'll no, do the recording. Kidding. No, you know what? I'll tell you what it was. Um, my job. I, I have a degree in public speaking and acting, <laughs> and my job is to talk, <laughs> and I want my, my year to be more about listening. What? And figuring out <laughs> what people are saying more, because it's really easy for me to, huh? to jump in and say, and Matt, I got it, I got it. <laughs> zip it, Matt. Zip it, Matt. <laughs> I have to say, Cassie, I love, I love that to your recording about that. I thought it was really profound. And yeah, thank you for contributing. 
Of course. Well, thank you for asking me. I like, uh, I, I read that Susan Cain book about introverts just because, well, it was very interesting and she's an interesting person and that quote about we have two ears and one mouth for a reason. <laughs> I love that. It's so simple. <laughs> I mean, if we could listen more. Yeah. Well, that's great. Things can we learn. So, yeah, and it's an interesting thing for me. I'm not even sure how it's going to play out, but I think um, maybe it already has begun with, you know, connecting with the two of you and listening to what you're doing um, and, and, and figuring out how that's connected to what I'm doing and, and being a guest like this. Even though I'm talking, I'm still practicing the art of listening as well. Well, we've thoroughly enjoyed having you on. Uh, you've added some elegance that this show desperately needed. <laughs> well, thank you. Wow, so, I'll take it. So, thanks, Cassie. Must I hope my... we can. I hope we can get you on again. <laughs> I would love that. Thank you so much. Thanks, uh, Cassie. It's been a real pleasure, and happy New Year to both of you. Bon année. Okay, so let's uh, finish this out, Matt, with our New Year's resolutions. We will save ours till the very end. And uh, what we've done is we've asked some people that we know if they would share with us their personal New Year's resolutions as it relate to the training and development, as it relates to the learning and development industry. And uh, then we'll talk. Great. Well, Happy New Year, Matt and Will. Cassie Labori here. And uh, my New Year's resolution is to listen more. Uh, I love what Susan Cain said about we have two ears and one mouth. We should use them proportionally. <laughs> my role as a person who talks for a living, <laughs> as a subject matter expert that people come to to, uh, to learn from, I, I tend to talk a lot. And so this year, it's a goal of mine to listen more than I talk and, uh, and see where that takes me. So thank you for asking. And again, Happy New Year. I'm looking forward to your podcast. Bye now. My name is Phil Reynolds, and my learning goal for 2020 is to get a better grasp on the actual validation of different assessments, as well as try to drive Matthew Richter crazy when I can just to uh, irritate him out of love. Thank you. Bye. Hi, this is Kara North. I am at The Ohio State University, and my New Year's resolution for 2020 is to finish my PhD. I have really taken my time in the program. I've really kind of had slow progress, but I'm going to finish it in 2020, which means I'm not going to be doing as many conferences, but I really just want to get PH done. Have a good 2020. Hi. I'm Clark Quinn of Quinnovation. My New Year's resolutions for 2020 are to continue to fight for L&D to both do better at incorporating learning science into courses and look beyond the course to performance support and social and informal learning. Happy 2020. Hi, this is Ellen Burns Johnson with Allen Interactions, and my New Year's resolution for this year is to be more of a developer. Uh, I have lots of design chops, but I want to build things that people like um, with the tools that people use. So that's my resolution. See how it goes. Hi, Will and company. This is Roger Kaufman, Tallahassee, Florida. My New Year's resolution is one that I keep uh, trying to keep, and I'm going to do my best this time, is not to get into any arguments with fools because they want to drag you down to their level 
and beat you with experience. This is true uh, in uh, politics and in our profession. Anyway, you're going to do a fascinating project, and if I can help you on anything, uh, let me know. And above all, happy, healthy, and prosperous New Year. Bye. Hi, my name is Allison Saman. I am a functional nutritionist and certified holistic health coach and creator of such online programs as the Healthy Without Struggle Blueprints and Sustainable Weight Loss for Crazy Busy Women. And my New Year's resolution is to become a better communicator. I should say be more consistent and a better communicator. It's important to me that I can speak well to the pain points my audience has so that I can serve them better. I am a lifelong learner, and listening and learning more about their needs, desires, and fears will help me to better help them. That is my New Year's resolution. Thanks so much. Hey, this is Ulrich Bozer from The Learning Agency. I have two resolutions. One pertains to my own learning. When it comes to my own learning, I realize that I simply do not account for enough forgetting, and this might be simply because I'm growing older, but the forgetting curve, having house is saying this curve, affects us all, and, and I realize that I simply don't do enough to account for it. So one resolution is to simply allow for more forgetting in my learning. And then the second resolution is something more that I just really want to get up to speed on. I think a lot of people are talking about AI and education and all these headlines and so forth, but when it comes to AI and education, I'm really fascinated by natural language processing, so how the understanding of words and sentences can really impact the way people learn. We've seen some leaders in this field like Duolingo, but you know, when we think about AI and education, I really think that NLP will be, natural language processing will be that, that first wave, and really fascinated by some companies like Turnitin who have uh, been riding that first wave, but I think there's going to be so much more once we're able to really understand from the sense of machines and machine learning, what exactly people mean when they write, or even when they're talking on uh, voicemail messages like this. And so um, that's just something I want to learn more about, get up to speed. So happy last day of the year. I'm hoping uh, that 2020 brings us all a lot more learning. And thanks so much for taking the time to hear my New Year's resolution. Take care. Bye. Hi, this is Julie Dirksen. And resolution for 2020 around learning and development is to try to take on more of the mindset of uh, empirical investigation or testing of solutions. Uh, that has been something that I've tried to do kind of throughout my career, but um, the issue is a lot of times evaluation gets neglected because it's overwhelming, but there's no reason we can't do sort of small-scale evaluation um, by testing out some ideas that we have with a smaller cohort from the population and seeing if we're actually getting the desired results from the things that we're building as we go along. So it's really more a form of formative evaluation, but, um, but more actual testing to ask the question of, is this working before we roll it out to a larger population? That's it. Happy New Year. Hey, guys. How's it going? This is Alex Alice from Star Learn and uh, – I got to tell you that uh, you guys are doing an awesome job with this podcast. And in terms of my resolution for L&D this year is to uh is to make e-learning great again. <laughs> I 
said that, yeah. Hashtag mega. <laughs> Don't get it confused, though. So ideally, you know, we just want to break some myths, some myths out there of e-learning, make sure that e-learning is respected and we're not just, you know, throwing um, all kinds of things together and calling it e-learning. So that's my, my goal this year, to kind of educate and help people on that end. And uh, I wish also to collaborate with you guys, so make sure that we also bring the science behind it and, and make it all awesome. All right. Thank you, guys. Have an awesome 2020, and let's keep going. Hello, this is Miriam. So, usually I don't do New Year's resolutions because I always terribly fail, but this is one that keeps coming back every year, so I'm just going to stick to it. And that is that I am continue to do more research and writing uh, and encourage people to take an evidence-informed approach to learning design. So that's my resolution, number one. And then number two is to do that without getting frustrated uh, with all the snake oil out there and with all the silliness out there, um, all the wrong focus and the bling that people um, focus on, etc., etc. However, the sad news is that I already failed today. But I'm just going to keep trying, focusing on the positive, focusing on improvement, and trying to not get frustrated that it goes really slow. So, Happy New Year to everybody, and just keep trying. Bye. Hey, folks. This is Dave Barton from the Learning Development Crew with the National Park Service. This year, I'd like to build some time into my regular schedule. Uh, for my own continuous learning. Uh, while doing some research for a recent presentation, I cracked open some of the industry classics, and well, I found that some things in the field are evolving quickly. My observation that moment was that there are still so many valuable principles, examples, and ideas in our, in our history. Um, to work on this goal, I hope to include a range of resources, whether they're brand new or uh, collecting dust on the office shelf. Also, I hear podcasts are back in. Thanks, Will. Well, those are pretty great, Will. Well, I'm going to give mine first. So I have three goals. One is I'm writing a book on management tools and resources. And um, I am hoping that will be done before June. And uh, Tiagi and I are writing it together. And, um, and uh, I hope we finish it. So my goal is we will. And so that's one. My second one is I'm editing a book with You Will, with our friend Guy Wallace and our other friend Clark Quinn on debunking and the art of debunking, the science behind debunking and tips, techniques and, and more uh, on it. And my goal is we will have all the chapters in by June and for the book to be published sometime in the fall. And then my last, uh, New Year's resolution is I'd like to create four new, brand new, completely asynchronous e-learning programs um, and uh, on management, leadership, and more. All right, so my turn. Um, I don't always do New Year's resolutions per se, but I do have goals. So one of the, one, my, my first resolution is um, really becoming really looking for more opportunities to do the work that I do. And obviously, you know, 
the partnerships I have with you, the debunking book and the podcast. I want to continue those and do those well. Um, but I've been doing work learning research for 21 years. And, um, you know, I work alone a lot of the time. And I think maybe, you know, working with other folks might be beneficial to you know, keep looking for those opportunities. And, and you know, <clears throat> because one person can only do so much. So my other resolution is I am working on a book and it's coming along very nicely, I have to say. And it's really a book that's going to help the learning team integrate better with the senior management of organizations. And I really see this book as, well, I, I'm, I'm always overly optimistic about these things. And it's good to be overly optimistic when you're in the middle of working on it. But I sort of see this as creating some creative destruction and breaking down some of the ways we've been doing things and rebuilding those things to do, do it better. Because we, we make a lot of mistakes. Our senior leadership makes a lot of mistakes. We don't always get the respect we need to get as learning professionals. And I think I have a way to sort of work this out, but we'll see. That's our episode today. And we're looking forward to our next one. We'll see you in two.